Hello and a warm welcome once again to the Exchanges Discourse podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gareth J. Johnson. We're a companion podcast to the Interdisciplinary Exchanges Journal, which itself has been published since 2013 by the Institute of Advanced Study at the University of Warwick, and for which I'm the Editor-in-Chief. In each episode, we may be talking to authors who have published with the journal about their research, about their academic publication experiences, and also their advice for new authors. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking once again with one of our past authors. So, let's get to that. Well, we're welcoming back today a get, former guest of the podcast, and uh, I want to say friend of the show, that makes us sound like a radio broadcast at that point, <laughs> but a uh, friend of the podcast, anyway, uh, Hui Huang from Edinburgh University. Hello. It's a genuine pleasure to have you have you back on the, the podcast this time. And of course, we're going to talk about a more recent paper of yours you've published with Exchanges rather than we did in the previous one. But firstly off, because of course people might not have listened to the last episode, tell us who you are and tell us a bit more about yourself. Okay, um, my name is Huayi, Huayi uh, Huang, and I'm currently working at the Univers University of Edinburgh. And what I currently do, one of my projects is involved in looking at large scale transformations in Scottish primary care and as part of my broader interest in change and hence the paper that we're talking about today and how change might be manifested and encouraged. Excellent. Before we started the recording, we were having quite a long discussion on, well, quite a lot of things, including building work and uh, the challenges <laughs> of using Teams to record podcasts. But uh, by the by, today our focus very much is on your paper, um, which was a fantastic piece of work. I thought I really enjoyed it. It's one of the longest pieces we published as well with exchanges, which I, I always like to see as well. Nice to have a nice meaty piece. Now, it's entitled Reflections from Research Practice, Realism and its Reality, Coming to Know This and Working Out Its Mechanisms of Socio-Material Change. Lovely long title. <laughs> Tell us what it's about for those who haven't read it yet. Sure. So this paper is very much trying to draw together uh, some of the current ideas in modern epistemology, so modern theory of knowledge and in the realms of philosophy, um, which are sort of spreading beyond just the discipline of philosophy, mm -hmm. um, particularly in terms of natural sciences and social sciences. There's increasing numbers of publications interested in some of these ideas of realism. And I thought it'd be useful to share with colleagues some of these ideas and kind of my take um, on them, I suppose, based on the existing literature. Um, as one does in academia. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's the basis of it really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what's, what's your central argument then within the paper? So I think I'm very much in this paper trying to uh, encourage colleagues to become interested in the ideas of mm. real, realism and particularly the various what I see as compromises, um, mm. which mm. we might come back to later on um, mm. around our theories of knowledge. So I guess having had a bit more experience since my doctoral days, um, currently I, I sort of am of the belief that more or less many ideas that we think about, yeah. um, particularly in academic research terms, um, can have theories um, underpinning them. And it's not hard to have a look and dig around and find theories <laughs> of all sorts of ideas that you thought 
you know, no one might have theorised about. Mm. Um, but then in this case, in the case of this particular paper, of course, the idea is about knowledge, right? And what it really yeah. means to know. And as you do more academic research, I guess it's not uncommon for colleagues to find the idea of becoming more complicated than straightforward in some sense, partly because of its underdefined nature of the idea of knowledge and partly because of the fact that we're kind of familiar with that idea from our very earliest days um, on earth really. Mm. Now you mentioned there about the compromises within theories of knowledge that's I thought that sounds a really interesting topic do you want to talk, um, expand a little bit on that? Yeah sure um, and actually just to point back the terminology I mm, think one mm. of the a collegial reviewers really wanted me to clarify around that idea of compromise because it, mm. it can have negative or positive connotations um, and quite rightly um, he pointed that out and in the context of this article I think um, the, the point of this terminology is not really about uh, weakness uh, in any sense in terms of academic work done or the different positions existing about the idea of knowledge. It's more about kind of taking a non-polarised view, so not, not just refusing on either side or, or well, it's probably more than two mm. sides actually mm. on in any of the camps not just refusing to listen to the views of reasonable arguments of others and instead trying to kind of reconcile some of the uh, tensions and and um, concerns I suppose from from all sides in trying to come a kind of um, integrated come to integrated uh, understanding that's mm. compatible with lots of colleagues kind of ongoing work and isn't mm isn't kind of too much at odds with what people do. Reminds me of a paper I was reading yesterday about uh, this was on reviewing um, and rewarding academic reviewers. And actually, I disagreed with most of the paper. <laughs> reading, uh, well, it's, it's very interesting points of view, but I really, no, 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 I don't I don't agree with this. But I read on because I, I'm, I'm interested in the thought. I'm interested in you know these differing opinions and it informs my practice, it informs my, my own thinking on the subject. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think you're right. So, you know, as academics, you know, we're there to challenge our own base of knowledge. So much of the time, I think we can. The, always is a danger as we become more and more established to just sit within our own comfort zones of well, this this these are the, these are the people who I, I publish about and with, and you know, this is the the people who I have a synergy with. Well, actually, doesn't mean it's the kind of the correct or the most efficacious or the most beneficial area to be sat within. And actually, to try and upset yourself or you know to change your own perceptions in a yeah. way by reading stuff that absolutely you know that's contradictory to yeah. your point of view yeah. i always remember um i think it's my supervisor in my phd <laughs> who uh, made a reference and I'm, I'm quoting him here when he says you know uh, when one reads one must read the literature of the enemy as well <laughs> and, and, and he was talking particularly about sort of um, arguments around neoliberalism Ah, and I says, you know, it's very easy to come from, you know, some you know, more left wing view or more right wing view. But actually to understand the field, you've got to read that wider literature. Yeah. It's always stuck with me, this, you know, the writings of the enemy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's very well put. And, and mm. I think certainly uh, even if you disagree sometimes, mm. as colleagues will know, and um, reading others' um, reasonable <laughs> opinions, mm. somehow sometimes that actually helps consolidate and clarify mm. what what your own beliefs are mm. um, 
And the, obviously, kind of when we're talking more about philosophy and kind of ideas which are more distant from data, if you like, I, I always like to say it's uh, more, much more challengeable, right? Just by definition, because they're much more abstract mm. and therefore mm. much more open to interpretation um, in a way that data is less, um, although not not completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. I was interested because something else you were saying earlier as well about terminology and clarification. Are you saying that the feedback you had from the reviewers? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always thinking that's such a valuable thing to keep in mind, particularly for journal like exchanges. I, mm-hmm. I suppose you know in our wider practice as scholars as well, because we're always making this assumption that we're writing for a community who have this sort of axiomatic understanding of what we're talking about of our concepts. Mm-hmm. And I I can still remember being when I first started my own doctoral studies and I was kind of coming into it into what was actually quite a new field for me I was coming Mm. from outside academic practice to it Mm. and people were throwing around all these concepts you know know, structuralism constructivism post-structuralism etc and I just sat there going is there a noddy edition I could just read to explain what these concepts are so I can then go on to understand the kind of theories I'll want to actually employ I was taking a very sort of you know, a quantitative uh, approach at that point. Uh, I'll, I'll have a problem. I have a theory. I'll get a theory. I collect data. I do the analysis. It was a you know, very yeah. linear understanding. And I think my, my thesis was much more nebulous than that, shall we say, when I actually constructed it. Was it was lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was, I can still remember that sort of, you know, just thinking, what do you mean by this? Because every time I read a definition in a, in one of the texts we've got, it seems to expect me to understand something before I even understand this definition and I just exactly. don't understand exactly. the definition yeah and the comedian I remember the comedian Rob Newman who um has gone into the study of philosophy himself quite heavily and suddenly had done quite a bit of uh, performance on it and he always said when he first started with philosophy he said you know I read a page of a philosophy text he said didn't get it I said I've read another one got it a little bit more and he says and I, I got to put when I was reading two or three pages and at that point I felt happier that I was beginning to understand it but it was a real struggle to get there and I I, I really felt on my own journey that transition so I thought I, I, I appreciated those comments on, on your paper in terms of clarification yeah. so important for that for those folks you know who are at well let's say the, you know, the interface the starting of their interface with research praxis mm. but also for those of us who are writing for an indisciplinary audience yeah, yeah. Well, we can't make that assumption. Exactly. So mm. many interesting topics relating to that, um, mm. Gareth. Mm. And, and I just want to, I suppose, add a little bit onto the conversation mm. then mm. around this issue of what does it mean? I mean, it sounds like a really straightforward question, and in some sense it is. <laughs> um, but I think in practice, it's again a little bit complicated because um like what, what we're saying for some of these texts there's a strong assumption about mm, the audience mm. and that comes through when you don't get it <laughs> when you're not clearly not part of that audience at, at the point of mm. reading um but there's there's a kind of partly i think that's that's the authorship issue um, mm. but there's also that's sort of entangled with the readership issue right because the the classic kind of struggle um as somebody going through the doctoral process is coming from a place where you're less able, I suppose, to quickly um, have a bit of a guess mm. correctly, your readership in such a way that it kind of works in practice. And then at the end of it, at, at the end of the training process, somehow in various ways, you become better at that, right? Mm. Um, you're much clearer about the importance of knowing your readership 
um, before you write, as well as getting feedback from members of that order, uh, readership, perhaps, um, to gauge um, whether you're saying things in the right way. And there's an interesting um, uh, sort of thing that one can do as an author, right, that I'm sure we've all done um, at various times about this terminology. So you could kind of put the terminology outside of what you're trying to explain in the brackets, if you like, or you can force, uh, foreground the terminology, the technical terminology, mm. and leave the readership to to understand and, and do their own work in coming to a sense of the meaning. And I think that applies um, actually in quite a general way. So mm -hmm. I've, for instance, read quite quantitative papers which do choose the option to foreground the terminology first. And that similarly for people who are less um, initiated into that way of thinking provides a bit of a barrier is what it is, right? It, it lessens the impact, if you like, of the publication and the potential reach a little bit by doing it that way when they could have just, well, maybe not just as easily, but alternative was to put the terminology kind of in the brackets and foreground the essence of what they're trying to communicate. And as an author, certainly I find that in drafting pieces, trying to mm. do that somehow helps. And in the piece we're talking about today, I very much tried to and probably occasionally failed to to try and, you know, do more of that than mm. the latter. Because similarly, as you say, when you get into philosophy, what is constructivism to somebody who's mm. looking at it for the first time? You know, is it quite physical or is it more mm. to do concepts or whatever? It's but but to try and sort of put that into the background mm. to sort of reference out, I find sometimes helps a little bit. I also remember again one of the things I did for myself. I think it was for myself more than my readers. Oh. And it's interesting we've been talking about authors versus readers here. It was to write a glossary of terms to go in my thesis. <laughs> and I thought you know, this is part of me being, you know, sort of in, in, thinking very instructionalist sort of approach to uh, okay. helping someone understand this because I was a lot of the folks I was working with were library staff who weren't kind of on the research. Uh, yeah. program and might be confused oh, by the, the highfalutin terms that Gareth was throwing into his thesis but actually I realised it was because you changed myself. Gareth from the Gareth you used to know I know <laughs> what's happened <But> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's a topic for a whole different okay. podcast <laughs> but it, it was I found it so useful to kind of go do I understand these terms myself you know, can I write a couple of sentences in each of these critical terms, these critical th pieces of knowledge within my thesis without three or four pages of reference to elsewhere to just say, well, this is what I mean by this. This is what I mean by this. Like act my definition of activism. And actually, that was one of the things that in my, um, in my internal assessor and I had a long debate over as we... Uh disagreed on interesting it was good it was great i mean it was a really interesting discussion yeah, we had but it was the it, but it was the most contentious part of my viva at the end oh. of the day just what i thought in was, the viva in the viva yeah just and just what i thought was a tiny internal definition okay. that they picked up on them no 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 i disagree wholeheartedly with this approach you've taken here oh. activism. activism is constructed as we would say well you know it's on the streets it is protest and you oh. have defined it as agents of change effectively was kind of the approach i had taken i well, okay. I, I i believe I, mine's valid just as I, i'm not saying yours is invalid but for someone who's coming to read my text my yeah. prose this is how i've conceptualized it and then you can understand when you're reading into my theoretical understandings into my mm. sort of um, um, research you can see where i'm coming from and definitely and since openness has always been embraced within you know, both thematically and operationally within my work, 
it's that kind of openness I wanted to embrace within my writing in the same way. I, you know, I want to be an open yeah. book when you read me so you understand where I'm coming from. That definitely came mm. across when I mm. dipped in. Um, you're, 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 so you're one of those rare people who's read the thesis. <laughs> well. I live to tell the tale. <laughs> it was lovely. <laughs> I was, I'm just, just picking up on something else you said as well. Um, you were talking about, you know, positioning yourself within scholarship as you know, each thing you publish is a way of positioning. And I thought that, that was a beautiful sort of phrase. Yeah, but, um, and I think that kind of has its roots um, or recent roots in something I read um, mm. in my qualitative research role, really. Mm. Um, and this is kind of, so if I just put it in in a, in a sort of brief way here, um, mm. I guess it's to do with the fact that the data structures um, as a qualitative researcher or in a qualitative role are not really that well defined up front mm. um, typically compared to the data structures one already has usually for more quantitative work and because of that I think that's why this kind of issue of theories of knowledge theories of ethics and all sorts of other kind of more philosophically inclined um, needs if you like comes to play quite naturally in qualitative mm. research because they are not um, as you know sort of uh, fixed right and um, so yeah. you, you mentioned the work you did in your thesis it, mm. on, on my reading is very much you know s sort of started to neighbor kind of all these things mm. right uh, kind of what what do you really mean by this idea you know it's not a variable uh, it's not a clearly op operational variable so what is your meaning in this particular text that you're writing for us kind of thing um so i guess then what i was going to go on to say is that there's an interesting article i think maybe in in the early um, 2000s or something mm. around that time in the quality of research literature, which essentially said, you know, if you don't have an epistemology, get yourself one and be clear about what it is, because it will help you. And I very much took that on board because I felt like, at least for myself, um, as an emerging scholar, if you like, mm. it's important to come to some cl clarification about what I think about the idea of knowledge in writing, preferably, um, but at least within my own mind. Um, so this piece is partly due to that, the, the impressions that article left on me, and part of my efforts to to get one, if you like, <laughs> uh, to get a clarified, um, contextualised one, and, and real doesn't attract my attention um, for the reasons that I've try to articulate in the paper so mm. um yeah that's a, i mean it's a, that's a great inspiration you know so it's you know it's a, a re-articulation a reconceptualization of this you know impact of other work upon ourselves i mean is that not all of research literature at the end of the day i mean maybe you know it's it's all about how we are we are, we are responding to the work of others yeah positively yeah. Neg negatively or in lots of different ways isn't it it's not it's very reductive to say positive and negative i'm, I'm well aware being a humanities yeah. scholar than myself these <laughs> days so, but, well mixed uh, methods and all you know absolutely all sorts. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you know so this this paper you say is a response you you feel to you know earlier work yeah in fact how would you like people to respond to this paper how do you feel you know what you know i, I, I don't want to dumb it down to say you know the takeaway message or anything like that but you know how would you ideally like to see people respond who've read this paper well you know how's it going to resonate with them do you think yeah so that's a great um prompt actually and i mm. think one message i'd like to share from the paper is around the idea of reality right so mm. is there just mm. one reality or is there more um and clearly um it's easy to find evidence in the uh, scientific record or the scholarly record to support the assertion that there is more than one reality um but i guess 
yeah, have a think. Just have a think about, you know, what whether that makes sense for yourself. Um, and I think that's a that's a start. I think I think it's a great start. And I, I like I say, I thought it, that was one of the reasons I really liked the paper because of you know the sort of richness of the text, but also because you know it's a clarion call. It's a challenge the reader to think about yeah. the topics raised within it. And I think you know that's a great purpose for any paper at the end of the day is you know to inspire to challenge to mm. inform you know these all these things i think all these ideas i think were conceptualized within it so thank you so much for submitting to the exchanges and i'm really proud we got it in the journal so me too <laughs> so I, I always like to ask obviously because we you know we, we talk, we've t- touched on areas of publication as well are you what are you working on at the moment then if you if if you can tell us of course <laughs> um yeah exactly um so i can tell you a little bit um mm. so i'm quite quite a lot of my time currently is spent thinking about theory and I guess for me kind of theories at all levels so this piece currently we're talking about is really about theories of knowledge um but actually recently I discovered that when you're thinking carefully about theory at a finer level um, we also can have theories of difference and similarity which is interesting um partly because that's kind of very much involved in quantification at a very basic level. So if you think about um, how variables are operationalized in terms of nominal um, or higher um, levels, um, who who quantitative colleagues will be familiar with, in essence, it's kind of a theory of difference and similarity, right? In the scales of measurement that we then bring to bring to the fore to operationalize um, these ideas about what differences and similarities there should be in the universe and if we think about the meter rule for instance that we're all mm. familiar with it's a very nice operationalization of a very specific way of thinking about differences in length right in the idea of length that we will accept and including myself um, and others we, we find great productive use for but the important thing is to bear in mind that the uniformity of the differences and similarities is kind of in part an assumption in a sense, in a funny sort of sense, although we readily see it every day and when we try and measure something and try and make the room fit. Um, but in, in, in a sense, it's all about the kind of what con- concepts do you have in a theory mm. and what are the relationships that are assumed or demonstrated exist. So that's kind of where I've ended up currently in working a lot on academic theory related um, ideas, really. Excellent, exciting stuff, I have to say. So that's great to I'm hear. I find it interesting, you know, see how it goes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I always love a bit of theory because, uh, as I say, <laughs> I, I, I think it's partly that imposter syndrome of coming to be an academic scholar later in my life. I always feel this elements of underlying theory that I don't grasp as strongly as perhaps those who've come up by a more traditional route. So hence the reason I'm always fascinated to others talk about it. And uh-huh. so elo- as eloquently as yourself, that's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so what about publications then? Are you um, developing anything from this work then at the moment or is it still just a very um, formative stage? Well, what I've just talked about is more some of the underpinning kind of thoughts that go through my head mm. as I work mm. on the applied work. Um, mm. Uh, so in terms of publications, we're working on, on a couple of theory papers, uh, one relating to self-determination theory, um, mm-hmm. which we've actually published something on already, um, kind of just around the theory, uh, and then review, you review around its uses. And we're doing more kind of applied work based on that theory at the moment. That's kind of one strand. Um, so another one is to do with a theory called normalization process theory, which is about how change might become normal. 
to mm. some group or groups. Um, <laughs> so sometimes it takes a while, sometimes it's a bit quicker, um, but that's kind of two of the um, publication, um, what well, lines of publication mm. that we're currently working on concretely. I like the I like those that last one particularly the idea of normalization of change that sounds very interesting works <laughs> it is fascinating and the more I get into it the more I believe in some of the worthwhileness of the mm. ideas because it's origin origins from sociology really mm. um, and incorporates um, I suppose some of the past sociological insights but mm. what's interesting is that it's found um, it's sort of spread considerably beyond that originating knowledge discipline and mm. it's quite quite wi widely known particularly in healthcare and amongst mm. clinicians and um, which is quite quite good progress for mm. you know in, in terms of theory it's not not bad progress it immediately sparked off me my memories of being an academic librarian back in the day oh, and God. the whole the difficulty of achieving any kind of underlying change within certain groups of staff you worked with where you know there's very much a custom and practice that we've we've done this over the years it's tried and trusted and when someone like myself comes in and starts asking questions about well, why why do we do it like this you know should we not be looking at how we are working and are there better ways of doing it? i don't like you know the smarter harder faster approach but more just you know other ways that actually can make our lives easier yeah while achieving our goals at the same time and the kind of inertia you sort of recognize within that you know, obviously it's an applied approach to it yeah the fact that we have you know people like yourself sort of looking at this in this in this sort of more theoretical sense i think you know, it's mm. fascinating because from that there are such applications in the uh, that you can draw on it in as you say it feels like healthcare obviously but certainly i can see in my past existences there's a lot to be, <laughs> a lot to be said for how do we yeah how do we normalize this new yeah. thing yeah <laughs> yeah well how do, how do we even achieve any change at times oh. in that life? <laughs> <laughs> <Very well put. laughs> so um i mean i asked you this last time and so if, it does feel almost redundant to ask you again but i you know you are you're, you're someone i'm um, you know i've enjoyed many conversations with both on the, the podcast around the podcast and over email but advice of public for people approaching publication now i'm teaching on a course at the moment for early stage researchers uh, who are reflecting on their practice and particularly on publication practice that's my kind of element i'm introducing to it mm. and it's been really interesting hearing the kind of almost nervousness of publishing that some of them have got oh. so i'm going to change it for my question of what's your you know your, almost your advice for a first-time publisher but you know we're how do you overcome that kind of reticence to publish or the challenge and normalizing it shall we say of yeah. embracing publication what would, you, what would your words of advice be that's very well put gareth mm. and i think the normalizing is actually quite important because i guess uh, as a first time author who hasn't really mm. done much academically there's that nervousness nervousness mm. as you say as we do when we do anything for the first time and at that point the act of publishing are the things that go along with that the concrete activities that attend to that um, is not normal for you right mm. quite, quite literally mm. because mm. you're kind of getting to grips with all the little bits um you know from conceptualization to the submission of the admin that sometimes comes with particularly submitting to some journals <laughs> <laughs> it varies mm. anyway um but i think what actually helps in part is actually getting yourself doing peer reviewing in a mm. sense because mm. indirectly that lets you step away from the kind of 
self-centered in a nice sense kind of wrapped up in your own very precious work which is good but then you kind of see the other end of it as a reviewer of others work of and it kind of calibrates a little bit your level in mm-hmm. terms of what what is a sensible threshold for particular projects writing projects that you're involved in for particular uh, outlets and it's somehow for me to set off that whole kind of chain of thinking around you know broader publication strategies how the different uh, publications you hope to kind of interact with or you are interactive fit within all that it kind of opens up your thinking is all I'm trying to say a lot more from the very narrowed initial that we all go through just focus mm-hmm. on your precious thoughts um, <laughs> they are precious but, mm. but it's, it's kind of it, it, a bit of perspective in, it's in, true. In, I mean, the, it's writing is such a personal act anyway. It is. And when you're enmeshed in research to such a level, it's that, you know, the writing is that public exposure. I mean, conference papers and the like, like as well. But yeah. And, I mean, I, it's one of those moments I, I had it myself actually recently, you know. So, it, 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 sorry, folks, it doesn't go away this slight nervousness of submission. A little but bit. I, 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 I sub- yeah, maybe it's maybe maybe I'm slightly more robust these days. But I just find myself at the point of submission. I was actually, oh, I've still got three or four days before this deadline. I could go yeah. back and have another look, and I just had to be saying to myself, it's as good as it's going to be at this point. Exactly. There's going to be revisions. There's going to be feedback. There's going to be comments on it. Hopefully yeah. constructive comments, hopefully ways to take it forward. Sitting here and just changing two or three sentences back and forth <laughs> and around, it, it's not going to make any difference. It yeah, is at this point. <laughs> it is. Time to is let go. Um, exactly. Oh, but <laughs> the second I sent the submission, in, I was just going, oh, that's, it feels a relief. It does. But I'm it? still having to use the, the, the great phrase, a conniptions over having sent it. Because What's that? A conniptions. The, it's, you know, the butterflies in the stomach, that feeling of, oh, I still have that slight shadow of the worry I still I had before submitting it. Uh, it get that fades over time, although now I'm now still waiting for the feedback on it. I'm starting <laughs> to build up again. Yeah. Oh, was it that bad? <laughs> Has it taken them this long to give me yeah. feedback? <laughs> Yeah, um, mm. I think that's very well put. And, mm. and the other thing, just to point out, mm. so that's a by the by the way, I, I, I suppose it's the idea that silence is not always bad, because mm. <laughs> mm. as you say, as an author, it's kind of terrible. Like you send it, and there's a great silence sometimes, and you think, oh no, have I done something terrible? But usually, more often than not, um, it's just just like other things, right? Mm. <laughs> Just like life. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things I often say to my editors. They say, do do get in touch with the authors periodically, particularly if there's a long gap of weeks or even months between us actually needing anything from them, just to let them know things are still progressing okay. Even if it's a case of you know we're waiting for feedback or there's there's been a slight glitch or your editors have you know been been off sick for a couple of weeks, just let them know because you say life happens. Yeah. And silence doesn't mean no. Silence, silence, as you say, might actually just everything's fine. Mm-hmm. But as I say, it still means at the moment I'm still thinking to myself. Yeah, and sometimes oh. like um, like I experienced um, this time with this paper, it actually just means that the reviewers are considering it properly and mm-hmm. 
you know, giving, trying to give you constructive feedback that'll mm. help to greatly improve the piece in this case. So mm. that, that was why it's so positive, really, for me, this particular experience, because I actually learned a lot through through the act of peer review, uh, being peer reviewed, mm. which is not mm. always um, the case. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny, if in, in one of the um, previous episodes of the podcast, I was talking about uh, what makes a good peer reviewer, because someone asked me, you know, what was my dream peer reviewer like? And yeah, that idea of dil due diligence of actually scrutinizing a paper to the right le level and degree to the depth of it is so important mm. it, and that doesn't it isn't rather something you can do in a very short period of time mm, exactly um and you know certainly i mean i've so value some of the peer reviewers and something you know when you see the feedback they offer and you know it's, it's extensive it's scholarly it's deep mm. and it's not a trivial thing they've done for us exactly and particularly for the author so yeah. I think we and we all benefit from it at the end of the day. Well, I'm going to say thank you once again for coming on. I have once again enjoyed our conversation, as I, I suspected I would today. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it too. <laughs> thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Excellent. And I look forward to seeing you know, your next publications wherever they land and uh, no doubt talking to you again, I suspect. That'd be fabulous. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> And my thanks for my guest for coming in to talk with us. For now, though, I am Dr. Gareth J. Johnson, and I've been your host for this Exchanges Discourse podcast. Now, if you wanted to find out more about the journal, there's a link in the episode description. Or you can find us easily by searching for Exchanges Journal Warwick. If you'd like to get in touch with a question about the podcast, or to discuss a potential submission, or indeed anything else, you can always reach me via exchangesjournal at warwick.ac.uk or via Twitter as exchangesiaS. Thank you for listening, and please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to catch every new episode.